Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Welcome to this podcast, the latest in Sibylline's podcast series. I'm Eloise Scott, and I am here with our SSA lead analyst, Ben Manzin, and associate analyst, Edie Lipton. And we will be discussing the trend of coups in Africa today. Clearly, coups have been part and parcel of of Africa's political landscape for decades. And while the long-term trend actually indicates that they're tentatively in decline, there are clearly still significant drivers of military takeovers in, in this region in particular. So handing over to you, Edie, first, what would you say is driving the recent spate of coups that we've seen in the last few years? So there seems to be a trend of the populations in West Africa no longer trusting their elected officials um, as working in the interest of the people, which is indicated by the coups in the region taking place often in the context of domestic unrest. That can be seen with the military governments in Mali, Guinea and Burkina Faso portraying themselves as a protection against corrupt political elites and other issues that the countries are facing. So, for example, in Burkina Faso, security challenges posed by escalating violence linked to jihadist extremist groups, including Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, have been impacting the population in the north of the country for years. This has prompted mounting domestic unrest against the government's inability to effectively address the security challenges and contain jihadist expansion. But domestic unrest has really been increasing in the country since jihadist attack on the Inata military base on the 19th of November. And since then, civilians have been frequently protesting and calling for the resignation of President Kabare. And this prompted the military to launch the coup on the 24th of January. The coup leader, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henri Damiba, has promised to effectively address the security situation and has said that the military will return the country to constitutional order when the conditions are right. And this is similar to the situation in Guinea, where declining economic conditions, despite the booming mining industry, drove public anger towards the government, which, combined with the cuts to pay for security service workers, prompted the military to stage a coup on the 5th of September last year. And the military government have since promised to address those economic challenges in the country. And this kind of links to the point that political electives in these countries are often seen by the people as proxies of France, which is increasing anti-French sentiment in the region and becoming a key factor in driving militaries to launch coups. This sentiment was reinforced by sanctions imposed by the EU on Mali, which bolstered support for the junta. And after sanctions were imposed, hundreds of people marched in the streets of Burkina Faso, not only to protest insecurity in their own country, but also to show solidarity with Mali, further exacerbating anti-French military presence in Burkina Faso. And this helped bolster support for the military ahead of the coup in that country. Also, these sanctions imposed not only by the EU, but also by the economic community of West African states on Guinea and Mali have had a limited impact on the progress of transitions or commitment of the military governments to secure an election timetable. So it's likely that this ineffectiveness was seen by the military in Burkina Faso and contributed to factors that drove the recent coup there. I think another important through line to highlight with all these coups is that these guys aren't like benevolent dictators, essentially. In many cases, while they claim to be responding to real domestic challenges, this has represented a sort of shift in the old guard kind of replacement 
of the military leadership with the new figures. So in, in each of these cases, while these coups have been led by somewhat senior figures within the military, this is not the top brass. This is not the, the top of the military hierarchy. These are all, all of them colonels or lieutenant colonels who have kind of successfully identified a moment in the national discourse where they are confident that they can rely on popular support if they were to act against the government and sue their own advancement, really. I mean, this was very much the case in Guinea, where Dumboya, in, in terms of where his career was, was going, he was at risk of being phased out by um, the Ministry of Defence, essentially, and being kind of sidelined. And it does seem like he utilised a moment where the Guinean population was really at the end of its patience with Avaconde, and then stepped in and, and subsequently, you know, utilised the claim of attempting to right the, you know, historic wrongs in Guinea's democracy and attempting to reform the electoral systems as a way of protecting his popularity and power going forward. And still, you know, even though it's been you know, almost a year, we don't have an election timetable despite promising that he would return to civilian rule. Similarly, it's early days in Burkina Faso, but Lieutenant Colonel Zumiba has already come out and said, one of the first things he said, was that they would be replacing the military top brass because they had handled the conflicts with the jihadists so poorly. So in all these cases, it does appear that jumping on to or, or seizing upon a, a kind of national move of kind of popular opposition to the government, driven by a multitude of different factors, you know, in Guinea, it was a sense of growing government authoritarianism. In both Mali and Burkina Faso, it was the state's inability to deal with jihadist violence. But they've been able to utilise these moments in order to secure their positions. And these two are, you know, it's a kind of point that you know, he was kind of alluding to. They are sort of self-fulfilling. So the, the success of Goita in securing the support of the Malian population, despite international condemnation, despite sanctions from ECOWAS, I think was clearly an inspiration for the leaders in Burkina Faso, because they saw that, you know, even if they were to come up against quite significant resistance, that this could be this could be overcome and they could do that by utilizing the same narratives that have been so successful in Mali. So that was a case of talking about themselves or rather steering into a kind of pervasive anti-French sentiment that had been developing among the Malian population because of a perception that France had failed to avoid the country for many years to improve the security situation. The Malian government was then able, or the transition government, the junta, was able to then say, we are standing up to France, we are pursuing our own national sovereignty and, you know, international sanctions, particularly from the European Union, played that narrative very well and, and actually bolstered support for this um, junta. And so Burkina Faso, which also has a quite kind of growing anti-French trend in that we have seen protests, um, France's inability again to, to improve the security situation in the country, they are in a position to utilise that narrative as well. And so what we're seeing here is how these cues can inspire one another. And that, and that I think, has been, has been a key driver. Those are really interesting points. Thank you both. So clearly, there are both local and regional factors at, at play here in these coups that we've seen. You also touched on ECOWAS and the role that that organisation is playing. So what do you think this organisation can do to counteract this trend? And is there actually anything that, that it can do to, to counteract some of these more challenging regional sentiments across the region at the moment? So far, ECOWAS has taken a harsh response in Mali and Guinea, which, as they've said to 
deter other countries in the region from following the trend. So in Mali, following the transitional government's five-year postponement of elections, ECOWAS announced its decision to break all diplomatic ties and impose economic sanctions on the 9th of January. ECOWAS closed its members' land and air borders with Mali, and it froze non-essential financial transactions with the bloc, while the West African Economic and Monetary Union has terminated the country's access to regional financial markets. The sanctions are likely to catalyse economic deterioration and therefore undercut domestic support that the junta in Mali is currently experiencing. And this is probably the reason that ECOWAS is motivated to do this, because although the junta is currently experiencing the support, it's likely that once the economic impacts are felt by the population, sanctions are going to encourage people to pressure the military government into holding elections and ensuring the transition to democratic rule. And in Burkina Faso, the regional body has kind of taken the opposite approach, where they've announced that they will not impose further sanctions against the military junta following the coup after a delegation sent to the capital said that the coup leaders had demonstrated a willingness so far to return the country to constitutional order. But the military junta has not proposed a timeline or a return to constitutional order yet. So if the junta demonstrates continued delay to elections, as in Mali, ECOWAS are likely to adopt a harsher approach and impose sanctions in Burkina Faso. I think an important point to highlight really is essentially the kind of scattergun approach of the ECOWAS. It sort of does appear that the region is in a sense of panic essentially over these coups and are sort of uncertain how to respond. And, and while, as Edie highlighted, you know, what their intention has been to do in Mali has been to disrupt the economy so much that it undercuts ports in the long run. While that's still possible, the kind of proliferation of coups in the region is actually making that harder to achieve. So while ECOWAS has said, you know, you, you can't use our land borders, and that's really damaging in terms of you know, Mali being a landlocked nation, they're quite dependent upon ports and Cote d'Ivoire um, to the south. Guinea, obviously now run by its own hunter, has turned around and said, well, we're not going to enforce this, these border closures and you can use our ports. Um, so that really does undermine the effectiveness of ECOWAS's sanctions. And unfortunately for ECOWAS, that is essentially all they have, because while ECOWAS has in previous years stepped in on some occasions militarily to ensure stable transitions, you know, notably in Guinea-Bissau and the Gambia, they aren't in the same position to do that. I mean, partly because Mali presents a completely different obstacle to Guinea-Bissau and the Gambia being significantly larger, but also because ICOAS does not want to take over you know, direct responsibility for handling the jihadist conflict in Mali. It doesn't want to um, deploy troops and then have to deal with that in the long term. And so, and that had been more of an option, you know, previously Nigeria was a prominent player in these military deployments and, and Nigeria is frankly currently too distracted with its own military and, and security challenges with bandits across the north and centre of the country. Uh, jihad is still active in the in the northeast of the country, uh, militant groups active in the south-south. It, it can't, dealing with all these, these issues, it can't then go on these kind of semi-military ventures around the region. So ECOWAS is sort of unable to really do anything other than sanctions, and their sanctions are being undercut by the proliferation of coups, as I pointed out. And so what we've seen then in Burkina Faso is that they concerned that actually, again, the sanctions will have limited effectiveness because, you know, maybe Mali and Guinea again say, oh, well, it's OK, you don't have to use their borders or ports, use ours. They've said, oh, OK, well, what we'll do there is we'll just you know, suspend them from ECOWAS. Uh, but we're, you know, we're loath to impose more sanctions. We don't want to drive uh, Burkina Faso away. We don't want to reduce their cooperation with us. 
And while that might be a way of making sure that relations, you know, don't deteriorate significantly, it's not going to force the, the hunter to actually change the way they behave or push them towards a civilian transition. So essentially, ICOWAS is sort of left unable to do anything. Yeah, those are really interesting points. And just to kind of touch on what you said about how the spate of coups has really undermined ECOWAS and its ability to enforce these sanctions. Like I said, I think that's a really interesting point. What would you have to say maybe about the broader international community? Um, obviously, there's a considerable French deployment to try to counter the jihadist trends and the growth in activities and expansion of activities there. What would you say about the broader international community beyond ECOWAS? Again, it's hard for this community to impose sanctions as well. While they have done that, in many cases, these sanctions are ineffective. So for the US, for example, impose sanctions on both Guinea and Mali. But Guinea and Mali do very little trade with the US. So that ultimately means nothing. The, the European Union has imposed sanctions upon uh, leading figures within Mali. But again, you know, without actually attempting to undercut their domestic support by trying to you know, really undermine the economy, you know, that's not going to shake faith in the hunter. And for a start, they were loath to do that because they were concerned that by doing so, they would be playing into the narrative that, you know, they're trying to impact situations on the ground and attempt to dictate the direction of those countries. But, but having imposed sanctions at all means that they still play a narrative. Sanctions are highly ineffective. Um, so it's, it's very difficult for these, you know, international powers to really do anything about it because it, anything they do plays into the sort of nationalist agenda that these hunters are deploying. And by doing that, kind of giving these hunters in a rhetorical fodder, these actions do undermine working relations with these governments, uh, which is a significant challenge for international efforts to combat jihadism in the region. So we've already seen Mali you know, essentially prevent Danish troops from deploying to the region, even though it had previously been agreed that they could under the Tacuba task force. Now Mali is saying that, no, actually, we need bilateral agreements with every single country that wants to deploy into the country. And this essentially sort of threatens the viability of, of the Cuban task force, which is an effort to essentially make countries which maybe aren't that keen on significantly investing in the region, you know, trying to find an easier way for them to do so. Well, doing what they're doing, they're doing now significantly threatens that whole arrangement. And so it's possible that this task force may either opt not to work in Mali or may, may be prevented from working in Mali. It could still potentially work from in Niger and, and possibly Burkina Faso, depending on relations between that, that hunter and the EU going forward. But if this task force can't cross into Mali, then its effectiveness is highly limited because this is essentially the primary area from where jihadists operate. The, the deterioration of relations between particularly Western nations and the uh, hunters threatens to significantly undermine regional stability by exacerbating this conflict with jihadist groups. Thanks, Ben. And yeah, I guess just a final question to both of you. Are we likely to see further coups? Obviously, it's been a busy few years. Where do you reckon might be next? And are we likely to see further in the next year or so? I think going back to what Ben was saying, there's a limited effectiveness of sanctions. And then ECOWAS's decision to hold back on sanctions in Burkina Faso being seen as too lenient could potentially undermine attempts to discourage coups in the region. This could elevate the threat of coups in other vulnerable governments like Niger, Benin, Togo and Cote d'Ivoire potentially, which are already vulnerable to domestic unrest. And the recent coup attempt in Guinea-Bissau last week also kind of indicates the continuation of this trend in the coming months. I think basically I have to agree with Edie. I mean, you know, there are a number of countries in the region which are highly vulnerable to 
elevating unrest, all of which can be exploited in the same ways as we have seen across Mali, Burkina Faso and Guinea. I think currently there are some mitigating factors. So across, you know, Cote d'Ivoire, Togo, and Benin, which have all essentially seen sort of assaults on democratic norms in one form or another. Alessandro Ouattara is serving a controversial third term in the same way as Alpha Condé was. The Nassingbay family have been ruling you know, Togo since the 70s and been rising unrest over you know, allegations of electoral fraud in, in recent elections, most notably in 2017 and 2018. In Benin, Produce Talon also seems to be clamping down on the opposition and like preventing essentially opposition parties from competing in legislative elections. Kind of the same levels of sustained unrest, which characterise Guinea, for example, in the years before Condé was removed. It doesn't appear that, you know, there is an imminent threat of, of a coup. And, you know, I think even thinking about Guinea-Bissau as a, a kind of point of comparison, you know, potentially one of the reasons why it didn't work there, that wasn't a sustained uh, domestic unrest and domestic appetite and domestic opposition to the government, as we had seen in Guinea, you know, Mali and Burkina Faso. So that does seem to be a kind of key element of, of success in these matters. And, you know, that currently isn't there along the West African coastline. But they're all vulnerable to that kind of kicking up again in the coming years. And in those moments, it's possible that depending on how these hunters fare, they will continue to serve as inspiration to junior officers or mid-ranking officers that are looking to advance their position in the face of entrenched military leaders who sort of won't move or trying to undermine their careers. So in those cases, it does seem like there will be this kind of ever-present threat of coups going forward. I think the one to really focus on now is Niger, obviously, because, you know, while there isn't significant domestic unrest, it does face the same pressures from a jihadist perspective or security perspective as Burkina Faso and Mali. He's been fighting Al-Qaeda and IS-aligned jihadist groups for years now with little success. That conflict doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It has also married itself quite closely with the French government. And so if France continues to be seen as ineffective in containing violence, it seems like narratives that have been successfully deployed in Burkina Faso and Mali might also be deployed in Niger. And someone we haven't really talked about here, but I think is is present in the back of all this, is Russia and the ways in which they've been able to insert themselves into Mali. And, you know, you're seeing it in Burkina Faso with protesters talking about potentially bringing the Russians in. And it seems entirely plausible that as Russia seeks to grow its presence in that region, it might deploy, particularly its cyber security resources, to attempt to uh, shift national conversations in, in Niger to sort of develop an anti-French sentiment and, and for Russian deployments, which they have used recently throughout the continent. They used it in the Central African Federation, and it seems that they're employing it increasingly in Mali as well. So it's possible that a Russian agitation could also help to build this sort of appetite in Niger, which again would potentially drive this kind of conditions and the leadership and position of Niger's government going forward. Well, thank you both for your excellent insights there. Maybe in the next podcast, we'll be able to delve into Russia in Africa in more detail. But for now, I'll hand over to Anastasia, who will run us through the flashpoints and events to watch in the coming week or so. Today, on the 10th of February, political advisors of the heads of state for the so-called Normandy Four, that is Russia, Ukraine, France and Germany, are meeting in Berlin to discuss the Russia-Ukraine crisis. The situation continues to evolve, though ongoing negotiations indicate that parties could still reach a diplomatic solution. Meanwhile, truckers are scheduling further protests against COVID-19 vaccine mandates in Toronto, Canada, on Saturday's 12th of February. 
with plans to gather at midday in downtown Queen's Park. Major traffic disruptions are likely to ensue. And with seven arrests made over the course of last weekend, police threatened to make further arrests of anyone bringing supplies to the protesters. In the Middle East, Qatar is set to host the annual Gas Exporting Countries Forum Summit on the 22nd of February. Western parties, including the US, will look to redistribute supplies and diversify gas routes in preparation for the possible impact of Russia-Ukraine tensions for Europe's energy security in the coming months. And finally, from the 21st of February, Australia will reopen its borders to vaccinated visa holders and tourists for the first time in two years, although quarantine requirements will differ depending on the state of entry. This measure is set to boost the country's tourism and hospitality sectors. Thank you all for tuning in to another Sibylline podcast. Um, if you want to get in touch or have any further questions for us, please do get in touch either on LinkedIn or via our email at info at And we'll see you next time.